But over the last five weeks, we've been looking at a series called Questioning God. You know, is Jesus the only way? Is there a loving and just God? Is hell real? Um, is, is, what is the church? Do I need the church? We looked at how the church is God's creation, this beautiful mess of, of living stones. The first week we talked about, is it okay to have questions? And we encourage you to, to ask questions and doubt your doubts and, and look further, investigate. But I want to I wrap up this conversation this morning by, by looking at the reliability of the Bible. Can the Bible be trusted as God's word to mankind? Is it reliable? Is it relevant? Is, is it relatable to my 21st century life of smartphones, Netflix, Amazon, and drones? But the first question we need to answer is, well, what is the Bible? Well, the word Bible simply means a book or a collection of books regarded as authoritative on a topic. No other book is more authoritative on the topic of the Christian faith than the Christian Bible. The Christian Bible is this collection of, of 66 different books determined early on by general usage in the early church to be God's word to us. It's written by over 40 different authors, farmers, shepherds, fishermen. There's even a, a fig picker in there. <laughs> the warriors, kings, prophets, doctors. It was written over a span of 1,500 years in three different languages. It's divided into two sections. 39 books make up the Old Testament, starting with the book of Genesis and, and going all the way through Malachi. The New Testament is made up of 27 books, written over a 50-year span that deal with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, his teaching. The beginning of the, the early church and instructions on how to live as a follower of Jesus. And then it ends with looking at the end times, how it will all end or begin for those who have put their faith in Jesus. The Bible is also the first book ever printed on the printing press. The best-selling book of all time. Portions have been translated into almost 2,000 different languages. We want to get the Bible into the heart language of the nations. So when I say Bible, this is what I'm talking about, these, these 66 books that define the Christian faith. You know, as, as modern-day Americans, we're Bible-rich. We have over 30 translations into English. And I was sharing earlier this morning that, you know, I often try to find a, a, a version that a translation that, <clears throat> that speaks to me in a, in a way that I understand is easy to read. And so I'll read out of the NIV, the New International Version, or the NLT, the New Living Translation. But then when I study, I'll, I'll use several different versions to get, what the, trans, to get the, the proper translation of what God's Word is, is really saying. But we've been blessed with many different translations and versions of the Bible. I have to admit at the beginning as we talk about the reliability and, and trustworthiness of the Bible, I have to admit that I have a bias. <laughs> I have a bias for the reliability of the Bible. I grew up in church 
singing songs like the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, Bible, we would all shout out. And we would sing these songs in Sunday school and primary church, and I was even part of something called the Whirly Birds. Anybody hear the Whirly Birds? <laughs> A few of you out there. We actually, we wore beanies with propellers on them. And I think back, it's like, Mom and Dad, what were you doing, <laughs> you know? And if you graduated, when you graduated from Whirly Birds, then you got to be a jet cadet. And uh, my brothers and I used to have this debate, what's better, a Whirly Bird or a jet, and, and all these things. But I grew up singing these songs, saying the, the Pledge of Allegiance to the Bible, God's Holy Word. All of these things have had an influence in my life. I grew up learning the stories of the Bible at an early age. My, my parents read us the, the Bible stories before bedtime, and we would talk about them, and we would pray together. And I learned to live my life by the truths of the Bible. The thing is, as I got older, and I began to read it for myself and study it for myself, I began to see a side of the Bible I'd never seen before. I learned new details about the, the G-rated stories I'd heard in my childhood, and I began to realize that, that the stories and the characters in the Bible really aren't that simple. I began to realize there's a lot of confusing and, and actually sometimes weird and disturbing things in this book. In fact, there, there's a whole chapter about mold. That's weird, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's stories about axe heads floating and, and a valley of dry bones and a beauty pageant. And, and there's a story of men hiding in vineyards, capturing dancing virgins to take home to be their wives. There's dragons and seven-headed beasts and people rising from the dead. And, and you, you hear this as like, what is going on? And the truth is, you describe the Bible in this way, and all of a sudden, you've got some pretty big problems and some pretty big questions. And so at the beginning, we need to be honest between the stories of faith and, and God's love and faithfulness. There's some pretty weird, confusing, head-scratching stuff in here. But just because they may seem weird or confusing to us doesn't mean the Bible doesn't have value. You see, all the things I just mentioned in some way are significant to the story God is unfolding as we read the Bible. We can't deny that, that the Bible is a complex book. Not only that, it's, it's prone to be misquoted and misinterpreted and misused and abused. However, as complicated and confusing as it can be, it's still the most read, most quoted, most loved, most life-transforming, most life-changing, and most controversial book in history. You see, it's controversial because you either live by the book and the story of Jesus or, or you dismiss it as some ancient text of legends and fables that have no real bearing on my life. In fact, some of you this morning have dismissed the Bible for this very reason. You know, we're okay with that. We're, we're glad you're here. I'm glad you're curious. I hope something that, that we talk about today will cause you to, to begin questioning and doubting your doubts about the Bible. 
But here's the problem many people have about the Bible today. Can an intelligent, educated, modern, 21st century person who believes in science and and reason and critical thinking read the Bible literally and seriously? Can they believe that it has authority to determine their beliefs and behavior today? Uh, Wrapped in a nutshell, the question is, why should I trust the Bible? Is it reliable? Is it trustworthy? Why should I read the Bible? Why, why should I take it seriously? Well, I think one of the biggest hang-ups people have is, why should I trust the Bible if, if we don't have the original? The original autographs, the, the original copies. And aren't there a bunch of, of copies over the century that, that contradict one another? This one says this, and this copy says this, and, and this copy says this. Who, who do you believe? Some people identify 160,000 variations of what the Bible really says. I don't know about you, but as I've read books in years past, every once in a while I'll read a book and be like, oh, there's a typo. (laughs) There's a misspelling. But to think that one book has 160,000 variations. So we need to look closer at this. Because I believe the message of the Bible is consistent. See, people will say there's these 160,000 variations, but it can be very misleading. The way they get to this number is by, by counting every variation every time it appears in any copy. So when a single word is misspelled differently in 4,000 copies, it's counted as 4,000 variants. The same variant, but 4,000 of them. And so if you take that into account, the number drops from 160,000 to 10,000 actual variation in the text over the, over, the, over the centuries. Well, that's still a lot, isn't it? <laughs> 10,000 differences? But we continue to consider that all except 400 are are spelling variants like J-O-H-N compared to J-O-N, or saying Russell instead of Russell. (laughs) You see, it has more to do with with language and typos and, and just plain obvious mistakes. Of those 400... All but 40 are sentence word order that really doesn't matter. And what do I mean by that? For example, we're saved by Jesus Christ our Lord versus we're saved by our Lord Jesus Christ. Which one is it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It leaves us with 40 variations where the sense of the passage is changed. And of those, the number of places where something theological or some belief or doctrine is at stake is zero. I mean, you think about it this way. Imagine getting a text that says, Son, your mom just won, your mom and I just won $10 million in the lottery. And later in the day, you end up getting an email that says, Son, your dad and I just won $10 million in the lottery. And you're thinking, Man, well, which one do I believe? <laughs> right? <laughs> well, no, it doesn't matter. Your, your, ten, your parents are $10 million richer, right? 
But it leads to another question. Why didn't God just give us one copy with everything perfect in it? The fact that there are so many copies really ensures that nobody has tampered with it. You see, there's thousands of copies from the first five centuries of the church, and they're scattered all over the world. So if you say that some secret monk society read the Bible and changed what they didn't like, is it possible that they changed all 14,000 copies scattered around the world? Or we think about it this way, the official 36-inch yard made out of titanium is, is kept in Great Britain. What if the original titanium yard, British yard, was stolen? Would you say, well, we don't have a standard anymore. My yardstick's useless and we, we throw our yardsticks away. There's no such thing as a, as a yard anymore. I can't trust my yardstick. No, because we have all the copies. You compare them to one another and, and know, let's know within, let's say, one one-thousandth of an inch how long a yard is. In other words, multiplicity of copies makes the Bible even more reliable than having only one original. The fact that we have all of these copies of the Bible means that we know what the original Bible says. The message of the Bible is consistent. But another question that comes up then is, well, isn't the Bible just a a bunch of myths and legends and and fables? Didn't the writers of the Bible make a lot of this stuff up after the fact? Well, to answer these objections, we look at what the Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter. If you want to turn there, it's page 984 in in the Bibles provided in the chairs. But we read in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, He says, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories. The the original word here is mythos, in which we get our word myth. And so the idea is we we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. See, Peter responds to those who accuse him of of making things up. There's no way we could make this up. We're, We're eyewitnesses of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's look at a few more things. One, the Gospels were written too early to be myths. The Gospels were written too early to be myths. The New Testament books were written as early as 20 years and no longer than 60 years after the death of Jesus. Well, that's too early for a myth or a legend uh, to crop up. I think many of us will probably remember the fictional book that was made into a movie, The Da Vinci Code, by by Dan Brown, in which the fictional character, played by Tom Hanks, claimed that the the Roman Emperor Constantine edited the Bible much later and and selected the stories that he liked about Jesus to to amp up Jesus' power. For example, people believe that Constantine made up all the stuff that that Jesus is God. 
But these claims were in the earliest Christian writings established well before the time of Constantine. In the book of Philippians, written about 27 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul writes a hymn sung by the early church which declares Jesus to be the resurrected Son of God. And part of this hymn reads, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by coming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, in judging from these early dates and the rapid growth of the early church before Constantine was even a thought, it seems that Constantine chose Christianity not because he invented it, but he wanted to back a winner. Furthermore, the the gospel writers refer to people and events that, that were current. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, which was written in 55 AD, some 20 years after Jesus, Paul writes, there's 500 witnesses who saw Jesus, and and he names a few of them. And he tells his readers, you know, if you don't believe me, check it out for yourself. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, it says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And the point is, people who were still alive at the time Paul is writing 1 Corinthians would have been around to, to verify or deny the claims that he makes in this letter. You see, the dates for the writing of the New Testament essentially show that that everything about Jesus, his words, his claims, his death, his resurrection really happened. You see, because anyone could write documents two or three hundred years later and when all the eyewitnesses are dead and they could say whatever they want. But a person couldn't say Jesus was crucified and resurrected when hundreds of people were still alive who had seen whether he had or not. You see, if Jesus hadn't been crucified, if there hadn't been an appearance after his death, if there hadn't been an empty tomb, if he he hadn't made these claims and the gospels were just going around claiming these things, Christianity would never have gotten off the ground. Another point is this, if you're, if you're going to write a legend, you want to make yourself look good, right? If you're going to write yourself into a legend, you want to put your best foot forward. The Gospels are too counterproductive to be legends. Now see, here's what I mean by that. If the apostles were writing a legend, surely they would have been more careful not to paint themselves in a bad light or provide any reason to cast doubt on their story. And yet, what we find in the Gospels time after time is a group of men fighting over who's the greatest. A group of men who are sometimes uh, slow to understand is really a bunch of knuckleheads. It's a group of people who run away when things get tough and, and they deny Jesus at the first challenge. 
But not only the Gospels, but the whole Bible is full of messed up people. People full of character flaws and moral failure. If you're creating your own religion, wouldn't you have wanted to clean those things up? Instead, the Bible shoots straight. It tells it like it is. And because of that, we can identify with the people that are in God's word. I'm like that. Often the women are heroes in the Old Testament and Gospels. And as I mentioned, next week, Dan is starting a series on the story of Ruth, a follower of God, and she's a hero. A whole book is devoted to her story and her connection with Jesus. But it's interesting, in the ancient Near East history culture, uh, women weren't regarded in that way. In fact, in the Gospels, the women were the first to get to the empty tomb of Jesus. They were the first eyewitnesses. In that culture, women's testimonies weren't admissible evidence in court. And so if you're making all this up, surely you wouldn't, have a, wouldn't you have a man be the first witness? See, again, the, the Bible is too counterproductive, too counterculture to be made up story. Another point is the Gospels are too detailed to be mere fables. You see, they're, God, they're, they're historically rich in detail and history and, and first-person accounts. No one in this time period was writing historical fiction. In fact, that whole genre of literature of historical fiction wouldn't be around for another several hundred years. And the Gospels give us details that don't seem to fit with the big picture of the story. Why? Because the authors are writing from experience. They're writing from memory. This is what happened. For example, in the Gospel of Mark, at the crisis point in in Jesus' story, his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was to be crucified, Mark, all of a sudden in his text, tells us, and there's a guy who runs away naked. (laughs) It's like, what? <laughs> but this little detail really doesn't have anything to do with the, with the plot. It's just a guy remembering, hey, this is what happened. You know, so if I'm telling my wife Jennifer about going to Acme to buy bananas and a, and a naked guy ran through the produce aisle, <laughs> that's got to become part of the story, right? <laughs> I'm not going to forget that detail. So the Gospels are too detailed to be fables. Uh, Finally, the message itself is too costly to be fiction. And what did the apostles gain by writing what they did? Because of their message, they were persecuted and killed. Church history tells us that, that the day before Peter was crucified upside down for his faith in Jesus Christ, his wife was crucified with these last words, my beloved, remember Christ. You know, to to say they made up these stories of Jesus suggests that one day a a bunch of guys are are sitting around and one of them says, hey, I got an idea. (laughs) Let's invent a story about Jesus that will get us and the people we love killed. And say, well, lots of people die for a lie. But people don't die for something they know to be a lie. I mean, would Peter, who at one point denied the living Jesus, have died for a dead Jesus? 
You see, one of the reasons why the early church grew so quickly and rapidly is people heard their stories and they watched them die. These early followers of Jesus, eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, kept proclaiming these truths even as they were being fed to lions, boiled in oil, crucified, imprisoned, and burned at the stake. I think it makes a pretty good case that the Bible isn't just a manipulated or made-up book, but there's still more questions. What about the contradictions? This gospel says this thing, and, and this gospel says that. Which one's right? You can't trust it. For example, one resurrection account says there was one angel at the tomb. Another gospel account says that there were two angels, so there are a problem. Is it, is it one or, or is it two? Well, see, in one account, one person saw one angel and talked to him, and he told us about him. It doesn't say there was only one. He just talked about one. And so the same could be said if I, I said, well, at the, at the 10 at the 10 o'clock service, I, I had a really good conversation with Festus. And somebody comes along later and says, well, there were five Festuses in the 10 o'clock service. Would my claim be wrong? No. I'm talking about my perspective and my conversation, even though there might have been five there. And see, there, there, there's what seem to be contradictions in the Bible, but when we look a little bit closer and, and think about them logically, we begin to see them resolved. And see, people will often approach the Bible with this predisposition for finding fault. It's, it's what they've been taught. And I encourage them to investigate the Bible for themselves. And, and after spending time seeking to understand it, honestly answering the question as a whole, does the Bible make sense? Is it historically accurate? Does this explanation of good and evil mesh with what I see and experience in my life today? Does the picture it paints of God and the relationship he has with us, does that make sense? Does the concept of redemption, God's intricate plan of, of rescuing fallen mankind through Jesus, does, does that resonate with us? You see, generations of, of people from different cultures and different ages have lived by this book, have been inspired by this book, have been radically changed by this book. It's inspired more artists and musicians than any other story. Great social movements such as the, the abolition of, of slavery and, and civil rights and, and women's rights and sanctity of life and care for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the sick, all have their roots in biblical truth. And these are just some of the many confirmations and proofs of the Bible's authenticity. If you want to know more, there's, there's books in the back that you can purchase. There, there's books to the library. There have been books volumes written about the reliability of Scripture. I personally believe the Bible is reliable, but it raises another question, and that is, well, is it relevant? How do I read an, an ancient book in a way that makes sense to my life in 21st century Western culture? I mean, how should I read the Bible in a way that makes sense in 2017? 
think it begins by understanding that the Bible is not just a book of commands. It's, it's not just a list of rules and do's and don'ts and doctrines or, or pithy little verses to live by. It's not some kind of owner's manual where it's like, man, what do I do with my doubts? Let's see, I'll look in the index. Doubts, doubts, okay, page 45. Or I say, man, I need help navigating through this tough spot in my marriage. And so I look up marriage and I, oh, okay, problems. Okay, page 32 to 213. It's not arranged that way, is it? But people get frustrated that it's not arranged like that. But if, if it's not just basic instructions before leaving earth, what is it? It's God's conversation with us. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we read, All scripture is God-breathed, inspired, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That word, God-breathed, or inspired, means, in other words, God is the author of the Bible. It's his word to us. He, he communicated himself to us in a way that we could read and study and, and understand and, and look at. The Bible is God's voice, his conversation with us. But, but some of you may be like, yeah, okay, so you said God is the author of the Bible. But you said earlier that there were 40 different authors. <laughs> uh, wh- what's the deal? Which is it? <laughs> We look again at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. And he says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. In other words, no one said, This is what it means to me, and then wrote it down as Scripture, God's word. No, Peter explains, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of men. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, the authors of God's word were carried along, and the word used here means to be carried along by the wind like a a ship with a full sail. In other words, as the men rode in their distinct personalities and perspectives and style, God was carrying their words to their destination. It's true. The men who wrote, they weren't perfect. They were very fallible, very imperfect. But it wasn't the men that God says were flawless what they wrote was. Because it's God's word to us. Peter tells us in this passage without apology that the Bible, this book that you hold in your hand is God's intellectual property. It comes from him. The word of God began in the mind and heart of God. And so as we read the Bible, we listen for God and we look for Jesus. The Bible's God's conversation with us. Not only that, it's a cohesive story of the gospel and Jesus Christ. It's a unified story from cover to cover and in comparison, let me, let me bring up a controversial subject. What if, we were to, what if I were to bring up <clears throat> kneeling during the national anthem? I gave all of you a, a piece of paper, and, and I told you, I want you to take the next 15 minutes to write a Christian response to kneeling for the national anthem. Do you think we would be unified on that subject? <laughs> I don't think so. 
I think there's such a diversity of opinion and diversity of things that, that we wouldn't be unified. Yet the Bible, written by 40 different authors with various backgrounds, living in diverse places, separated by centuries, spoke with complete unity on a broad range of controversial subjects. And that's because the Bible began in the heart of God. It's a cohesive, unified story. It's not a list of disconnected rules or how-to how-tos. It's a grand story of redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation. From Genesis to Revelation, from the creation to the new heavens and the new earth, we have one unified story of God bringing us back into relationship with himself. And yet part of our world, what, what the world says today, <laughs> there's no great story. It's all randomness and chance and chemicals. And I remember in college, one philosopher saying, life is but an empty bubble floating in a sea of nothingness. Well, that gets you up in the morning, right? <laughs> it's just hopelessness and there's no purpose, there's no reason. But the Bible says there is a story, and it's your story, and it's my story, and our stories are part of a bigger story, which is God's story. You see, this whole book of books is an announcement about Jesus and what he's done for you, who he is, how you can know him. The Bible is a cohesive story of the gospel and Jesus Christ. That being said, you know... <laughs> The Bible can still be a bit confusing, can it? It was written at a different time, a different place, a different culture than, than what we know. But as we read the Bible, if we're not going to get off track, it needs to be understood in the context and the culture in which it was written. To understand and interpret the Bible, we need to be wise in how we approach it. We need, need to be sure we're not making it say something that it never said. I love the psalm that says, as the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I, I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? And we used to sing a song about this, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul thirsteth after thee. And, and we would sing it, and it was great. There's the pictures painted of, of deer drinking peacefully from a quiet stream with this verse captioned beneath it. I mean, it's all soothing and, and serene. That's, that's what it meant to me when I read it, when I sang it, when I pictured it. But if we look at the verses in context, we find a completely different scene. Because just the next verse, verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night while men say to me all day long, where is your God? This psalm is about a real person who's thirsty for God because he can't find God at this moment in his life. This is a life song about a man who's spiritually dehydrated. He's at the end of himself. He's discouraged. He's depressed. He's in despair. He's crying out for God. And so the picture is not of a deer meandering through the woods with harp music. It happens to find a, a quiet stream and, and takes a drink. No, it's a picture of a deer that's being pursued by hunters. It's been running a long time. It's drenched with sweat. It's foaming at the mouth. It's exhausted. It's ready to collapse. It thirsts for survival. 
The writer of the psalm is desperate to meet with the living God. Man, that's a whole different picture than the song and the scene in my mind. Or even the picture on grandma's wall. And see, the point is, I need to be careful that I don't interpret the Bible in accordance with my own feelings, my own perspective, my own thoughts and culture, but try to understand what did the author intend by writing these words? What is God saying to me? We see, we can't assume that this is what this means to me is what it really means. Because my understanding is influenced by my preconceptions. There's only one interpretation, the original author's intent. That being said, you have to consider the possibility the Bible doesn't teach what you might think it does. You have to read it in the context and culture in which it was written. But really, sometimes the difficulties we have with the Bible have nothing to do with misunderstanding, but what we do understand. Mark Twain is famous for saying, it ain't those parts of the Bible I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts I do understand. And I think that's such an honest response to the Bible because maybe our problem with the Bible has less to do with how reliable or relevant it is and has more to do with me. You see, if you're struggling with the thought that the Bible may be true and and you're looking for more problems and solutions, could there be a reason you're hoping the Bible isn't true? Is there something in your life that you're afraid you're going to have to change or give up if the Bible turns out to be what it claims for itself? You see, the Bible needs to contradict me. The Bible needs to contradict us or we have a God of our own making. There will be things in this book that we have a hard time with, things that, that we will struggle with, things that, we re- <clears throat> that will require faith to believe, and you can respond in three different ways. You can respond by saying, yeah, forget the Bible. Or maybe you can respond by saying, yeah, uh, I don't like this part. All right. Let's see. Yeah, I don't like this part. And we kind of pick and choose. Or the third option is that I can choose to lean my ladder against the authority of God as outlined and described in his word and let it contradict and conflict with my life. See, I choose option three because I realized a long time ago I'm not always right. So if I'm not willing to let the Bible challenge me and show me a a different way of life and rearrange my priorities and, and show me right from wrong and mess with my feelings and thoughts and actions, I've probably created a God of my own design. I've created a God of comfort and and culture who always agrees with me. You see, the question we keep going back to in this series has been what or who are you leaning the ladder of your life against? What gives you the bearings to navigate consistently through life? How do you make decisions on what is right and wrong? You see, the Bible contradicts so much of culture because it's from God and not from us. 
You see, part of following Jesus is realizing that even though it may conflict with what I feel or, or what people around me are doing and valuing and, and prioritizing, excusing, I have a faith that God has a clearer perspective, perspective on the world, a greater purpose for his creation than I can possibly realize. The Bible contradicts me because I'm not God. You see, life is not just an empty journey, a trip to acquire more toys until eventually it's all over. The pages of the Bible we read about our role in God's design. And at the end, there's more than this gloomy extinction at the conclusion of a hectic life. At the very heart of the Bible, there's there's a way to know God. You see, Jesus took my place, took the punishment that I earned, and he hung on a cross on my behalf, and he died the death that I deserved, and then he stood up from the grave victorious, and because of this, I have life, life to the full in Jesus, now and forever. And you may be here this morning, and you're like, eh, I don't believe anything you've said this morning. You know, I'm I'm glad you're here because it means you're willing to listen, willing to to maybe doubt your doubts about the Bible, God, and faith. You're curious. You know, there's a lot of times when I read stuff that I don't agree with, and so I want to encourage you to do the same. Would you be willing to read the Bible? Start with the Gospel of John, or, or start with the Gospel of Mark. Read it with a friend. Reflect on it. Talk about it. But as you read those as you read the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Mark, as you read, listen for God and look for Jesus. And if you're here this morning, you don't have a Bible, grab one from the, from the chair in front of you, take it home, read it for yourself, read it with someone. Talk about it. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you've said yes to Jesus. Keep reading. Keep studying God's word. Read it not for pithy little statements you can put on your bumper sticker, but but, but read it as God's story of redemption and revealing his perspective and passion and purpose for his creation. And moms and dads and, and grandparents, man, read these stories to your kids before bedtime. Talk about them. Pray with your kids. Expose them to God's truth at an early age. Take teachable moments to talk about the Bible and, and what the Bible says on things that, that they went through during the day or, or what they're experiencing in life and talk to them. Pray with them. Make your faith a regular part of your family. See, these last six weeks, we've been talking about the questions we have about God and faith. And no, we, we don't have a video of creation. We don't have photographs of, of hell. You see, we believe what we believe about these things because we believe what God has revealed to us from his word, the Bible. We believe in faith. And if you're not there yet, keep doubting your doubts. Think about who or what you want to entrust your life to. Because you're entrusting your life to someone or something. I want us to think about this as the worship band comes out. Because at the end of the day, no matter what questions I have, 
No matter what doubts I'm struggling with or, or things I don't completely understand, I lean on what I do know in faith. And I do know this, that I am incredibly and extravagantly and deeply loved by my creator. I am his and he is mine. And I'm going to lean my life against that truth and who God is. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you've revealed yourself through creation and the beauty of a sunset and, and the intricacy of a baby, a newborn's fingers. Lord, we see your fingerprints all over this world, but Lord, you went a step further. You not only revealed yourself through creation, you revealed yourself through your word so that we can know you. Father, thank you for telling us who you are and what you've done so that we can know you and call you Father to know and experience the love we have from a perfect heavenly Father. Father, I thank you that we have a plan and a purpose. I thank you for your word that, that helps us navigate through this life, that comforts us, that sometimes challenges us. Father, thank you for revealing to us the way to know you personally in relationship. Father, help us to continue to know you more and more as you are, as you reveal yourself in your word. Open our minds to your truth, our hearts to your promises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.